Hey guys, and welcome to episode number 37 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Today, we are doing another Q&A, and you're joined by your usual hosts, Jack and Tierra. Man, I don't know what it is, but I really like the number 37. I've always been one of those people who really likes odd numbers and prime numbers, and number 37 is an odd and a prime number, and so is the numbers 3 and 7. I don't know. I know that's kind of random, but is does anyone else like hate even numbers? Because I just, I don't know, they kind of bother me. <laughs> mm, I don't really think about that too much. Maybe oh. you're just odd. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Okay, so this week we got asked a bunch of different questions and we have a lot, so we're going to jump straight into those. So this first question was asked by Cara Hansen, who's one of my clients. She's going to be competing in a few weeks in ICN Fitness and Sports Model. Super exciting, so excited for her. Anyway, her question is, what's the ultimate thing that made you want to compete and be a part of bodybuilding? Wow, what a big question to start off with. Yeah, so I guess I'll go first. And so I think for a lot of people, including myself, like you sort of just get started with fitness without like the ideal of wanting to compete in bodybuilding. And um, I obviously part of me getting into fitness was wanting to look better. But yeah, that kind of disappeared quite quickly because I think Tierra and I both have sort of a quite a obsessive mentality and bodybuilding sort of fits that criteria very well and looking to constantly improve on yourself and try and optimize every aspect of fitness and nutrition which is very very tedious for some people but for us it's we thoroughly enjoy it and I think bodybuilding and that competitive side of things because I am quite competitive competitive as well that sort of came at a later date probably in around 2015 and that's when I started really like picking up the pace a bit with my training and that's when the education sort of started leading my training and nutrition as well and yeah it sort of just fell into place really. Yeah I couldn't agree more but I think that a funny thing that you said was that you know you like you like to look good but that went away quite quickly. (laughs) I'm not gonna sit here and lie I think any physique competitor gets into it because they like to look their best and Mm. I agree that they get into it to look their best which is which is like the same for for me but then I think you have to admit like it's not really in the deep part of your off season it's not really in the forefront of your mind you're doing this to look good you're doing it to to win yeah exactly you're doing it to improve that's for sure and you know be your absolute best in so many different aspects of life but yeah something that you know man I think the ultimate thing that really made me want to compete is that I just see it as the perfect avenue to channel everything I love about resistance training and nutrition and all of my education you know that I spent years at university undertaking I like bodybuilding is the perfect avenue for that and also I've just always been one of those people who is very you know heavily involved in sports and I've always really cared about my health and I've always been absolutely fascinated and intrigued by nutrition and how I can apply different things to really enrich my own performance and my strength and my physique and just how I feel and I think it probably really started like During my last year of high school and first year of university, I really took a huge interest in nutrition and health and going to the gym and going on runs. And 
I'm not gonna lie, like, I probably didn't have many friends during those years because I just kind of felt different. Like, everyone I was surrounded by, you know, around, they were around the age of 18. A lot of people at that age are really, really interested in, you know, just going out and partying and drinking and, ah, uh, that just really didn't appeal to me. And I really liked getting on my bike, you know, and going for a bike ride in the sun or going to the gym or something and preparing a healthy meal. It just made me feel damn good. So yeah, I think that a huge part of bodybuilding that really appeals to me is the community because I I don't feel anymore like I'm alone. And I think, you know, I really get to surround myself with other people who are so passionate about this lifestyle and they love to lift weights too and they love to track their nutrition as well. And yeah, that's that's probably one of the biggest things for me. And just, yeah, it just allows you to really, really challenge yourself. I know a lot of people will say that, but it allows you to be very regimented and just work towards a goal. And I think that if you love lifting weights, especially, and you, you know, you're a very regular gym goer, it's such an awesome way to kind of put all of that hard work to use and go through different phases and kind of almost make it worth something, you know? Yeah. So that's, pretty much it. And I think that when I met Jack when we were 18, that was probably one of the best parts of my life because I met this person who was just like me and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm not alone anymore. And that's literally before I even really knew what bodybuilding or physique sport was. I just loved going to the gym and um, being very meticulous with my food. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy is the exact same. I need to say hello. <laughs> What about you? Do, do you think like a huge component of it is the community? Like finally, we're still young, you know, but I feel like I, I really have friends now, like people that I can actually connect with. And that's huge for me because this certainly is a niche. And at the beginning, I think a lot of people definitely have experienced feeling like a bit alone or a bit of an outcast in some sense. Yeah, it's so great that you're able to meet people from the bodybuilding community and train with them or talk to them on social media and see them at shows and all that compete with them even as well. Yeah, it is such a wonderful community to be a part of. And, you know, I certainly didn't mean that I think that, you know, all people who are involved in bodybuilding and physique sport are loners. That was personally just, you know, my own personal experience. But I'd be, I'd be really interested to hear if, you know, some people felt like that too at the start for sure, because I know that I certainly did before I was able to connect with others who were like-minded and, you know, love this industry and love working out and paying close attention to their nutrition just as much as me. Okay, so we're gonna move on to our next question. And this one was asked by Lizzie Kellen. It says, are there any negative effects to consuming 0.5 grams of fat per kilogram of body weight per day? So there is unlikely to be any negative side effects. It depends on a number of factors such as how much fiber you're consuming. Are you consuming any other uh, nutritional components that will interfere with your fat absorption as well? But to be honest, 0.5 grams per kilo should be more than enough to accomplish any of your requirements for fat metabolism. Yeah, and Jack and I have actually discussed this before and, you know, there there haven't 
been any studies done on this and this is just a pure discussion so kind of take what we say with a grain of salt and don't necessarily you know take it as truth or anything like that's purely a discussion but we've actually talked about you know when people start a dieting phase and especially if they are at a higher body fat percentage do they really require that much dietary fats apart from, you know, essential fatty acids, which the body cannot produce by itself? So those are your omega-6 and your omega-3 fatty acids. Also, you need enough fat within each meal to absorb fat-soluble vitamins and fat-soluble nutrients like vitamin A, D, E, and K, and also some nutritional components like curcumin from turmeric, things like that. But if you cover all of those bases, you know, and also the recommendation is usually between 5 to 10 grams or so uh, of fat in each meal to absorb those vitamins and nutrients. If you cover all of those bases, do you really need a fat intake that high? Because especially if you're at a higher body fat percentage, you literally have fat all over your body that your body can very easily metabolize and, you know, break down triglycerides into free fatty acids and then use those for different hormonal purposes and bodily functions. So that's really up for debate. And it's, it is kind of interesting because... You know, people do have tens of thousands of calories worth of fat and energy just stored on their body. So, yeah, what do you think about that, Jack? Yeah, it would be really interesting to get someone's perspective on that who's a, a doctor or a nutritional researcher. And it does make sense to me just because, as Tierra said, even if you're not vastly overweight, even if you're still, as a male, between 12 to 15% body fat, Theoretically, like that's an abundance of fat in order to be able to survive. And you should be able to mobilize that from triglycerides to free fatty acids uh, for your bodily processes. Yeah, it is really, really interesting. But, you know, general recommendations are keeping your fat intake somewhere between 0.6 to 1 gram per kilogram of body weight per day. But there certainly are bodybuilders who, in the depths of Comprep, will take that down to 0.3 grams of fat per kilogram of body weight per day. But certainly the lower you go, it becomes very, very important that you pay close attention to where your fatty acids are coming from. So you ensure you are getting all of those essential fats from omega-3 and omega-6. And even in that case, it's actually really important to still get some saturated fatty acids too, as well as unsaturated fatty acids. Yeah, so that is a very interesting topic and we would love to hear some feedback and other people's thoughts on that too, because sometimes I think like dietary fat is a little bit overrated, but hey, that's just me. Okay, so next question. Is by Dan and he asks, your top tips for diet adherence. Top tips. Hmm. What are your top tips? So yeah, it'll depend on whether you're doing something like a comp prep or just a, just a normal diet. So I think when it comes down to comp prep, it becomes more of like your mental fortitude and how much you're willing to push it because at the end of the day, once you get to those like single digit body fat numbers, like it's going to be hard regardless of how high your food is because the changes that you feel are going to be more hormonal related as opposed to just hunger. Because if you maximize your volume, like you should be able to 
relative, relatively have your hunger under control. So it'll be more the feelings of fatigue and lethargy and like lack of libido and lack of um, external motivation and stuff like that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'd really say, you know, top tips for adherence is certainly to have a goal in mind. So really know that you are working towards a set goal, but then plan ahead. So make small little goals that lead up to that big goal and really just have a plan. So if you're trying to adhere to a diet, like certainly first you need your total energy budget, and then you also need a good ratio of your macronutrient targets. But you really need to speak to someone who's qualified to actually put those numbers into practice and actually see them as actual food and actual meals and specific times in which you would eat those meals. So that's where it really comes in handy to especially have a consultation with a dietitian so they can help you work out, you know, your energy targets and your macronutrient targets, but then actually talk to you about specific foods that you can eat at specific times during the day in order to achieve those targets. And that'll really help with exercise performance and daily energy levels and satiation and just making sure that you stay healthy and well and nourished. So yeah, I would say top tip is really just have a concrete plan and surround yourself with other people who, you know, support you and also certainly fill your house with good food that allows you to adhere to that diet. And yeah, it's really about your environment too. And the final thing I'll touch on as well is just the difference between motivation and forming habits. So if you rely only on motivation, then that'll only get you so far. You want to rely on habits, just like brushing your teeth, just like, yeah, just like brushing your teeth. When you wake up in the morning, you go to the gym, you don't even think about it really. You make your meal and yeah, just think about how you feel as well. If you do cheat on your diet or you miss a training session, I can guarantee you that everyone always feels better once they finish that training session as opposed to missing out on it. So yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever done a workout that I've regretted. Mm. Yeah. Well, in saying that, I've never been severely injured, so that might be a different case if someone got really hurt, but 99% of the time, you're going to thank yourself later and feel better. Okay, so this next question was asked by Tanner Clarkson, and it says, is using protein powder that has gone out of date okay, or does the protein content decrease? Does the out-of-date protein powder become less bioavailable? Now, Jack and I just want to make a good point, and we think that this is pretty interesting. On food packets, you'll see two different things written. There's either a use-by date, or there is a best-before date. Now, there is a slight difference between these. So, a use-by date, we really recommend that you certainly consume that food before that use-by date, because that usually indicates that past the use-by date, it is highly prone to developing harmful bacteria and it's basically susceptible to bacterial growth. So a good example of this would be a use-by date for something like milk or something like yogurt because those foods, because of their temperature and also their pH levels are prone to bacteria. But on other things, there is a best before date. And these are usually on products that are much drier, so they don't have a moisture content. And a good example of this would be protein powder. So best before date is usually 
a date that the manufacturer puts on there to say, hey, this product is going to be its absolute best before its date. But if you do consume it after that best before date, you aren't really at a high risk of, you know, developing like consuming some sort of harmful bacteria or something like that. But it just might not taste as good. Yeah, for those sorts of products, I usually go by taste. And if it the consistency is a bit off and it tastes not that great, then that's usually a good indication because I think for products like protein powder and other processed goods like that, they won't be that harmful if you go past the best before date. Yeah, exactly. So, and also this must be really, really old protein powder because I had a look at some of my protein powders that I've unopened and I've just been sent by VPA and they don't actually, they say the best before date is before like 2021. So I've got a good two years to consume that protein powder. So your package is probably pretty old. Uh, but yeah, honestly, because protein powder is so dry, it's not really at a risk of uh, growing any sort of bacteria. All I did read something on the internet that showed that as like it continues to go past that best before date, the Maillard reaction can happen to the amino acid in there called lysine. The Maillard reaction is kind of when like an amino acid reacts with a reducing sugar and that can cause like a bit of funky taste and it also causes a bit of browning. And lysine is an essential amino acid. So you could potentially have a, a very small component of that product could have potentially less bioavailable lysine. And then maybe it wouldn't be as, you know, a high biological value source of protein, but I don't really know to what extent that would go. But yeah, I'd say, you know, if it's a little bit past its best before date, one, it's probably quite a few years old, but it's probably still okay to consume. All right, so this next question was asked by Kendra Wilson, and it says, what are your thoughts on the high carb, low fat diet? Are there positives and negatives to it? So yeah, the high carb, low fat diet is an approach that Tara and I both practice for bodybuilding. And we would pretty much recommend it to a lot of other athletes as well, and even the general populace, uh, because carbohydrates are obviously very important, are stored as glycogen and are used as our predominant fuel for exercise. And also they are much more difficult to convert to fat through a process called de novo lipogenesis than fat. So if you eat excess fat, it will be stored as fat, whereas carbohydrates can be stored as glycogen first. And then protein as well is obviously very, is much more difficult to be converted to fat as well because it's stored as part of your amino acid pool and a significant amount is also utilized as well by the body. So that's just the general basis of it there. In terms of positives, there's more positives than negatives, I would say. Like for starters, it allows you to get in a lot more like vegetables, starchy vegetables and whole grains and the vitamins and minerals associated with that. The negatives would be more that it would be more difficult to get in your essential fatty acids such as omega-3 and omega-6, more so omega-3 because uh, omega-6 is actually consumed in excess by a lot of people. And yeah, that's about it really. The problems with the, low, the higher fat approach is that it can often, especially if you're going uh, for ketogenesis, it can exclude a lot of your fruits and vegetables because they are higher in carbohydrates. Do you have anything to say, Tiara? I completely agree. I certainly think that taking a higher carbohydrate approach 
is really going to allow you to include a larger variety of wholesome foods in your diet. I think it's a much healthier way to approach a diet because you're not excluding food groups. And also it's really going to aid exercise performance for all athletes. And even if you're not an athlete, just a recreational gym goer or a recreational cyclist, eh, just Glucose, man, carbohydrates, they are our body's main fuel source and they make you feel really good. So yeah, I certainly think taking a higher carb, lower fat approach is a fantastic idea. And even though it's called low fat, you know, again, consuming 0.6 to 1 gram of fat per kilogram of body weight per day, if you're a 60 kilogram female, you know, consuming around 60 grams of fat per day, that's heaps, you know, you can certainly fit in a salmon filet there to get some omega-3s and some nuts and seeds and put olive oil on your salad, include a few eggs, include a few serves of full fat dairy. I like, think that's definitely over 60 grams by now. Maybe. Well, it depends on, it depends on the serving size, of <laughs> course, and, you know, spreading those foods out across the week and across different days. This actually ties into Kendra's next question really well, which is, what does insulin resistance mean and how do you know if you have it? All right. So insulin resistance, it kind of speaks for itself. So it's basically when your cells are resistant to the signal from insulin. So insulin is a hormone that is released from our pancreas in response to a rise in blood glucose levels, but also a rise in amino acid levels and fatty acid levels too. So insulin, what it normally does is it's released from the pancreas and it goes to our cells and it signals for GLUT4, which is a receptor, to come to the cell surface and GLUT4 predominantly can take up glucose into the cell so that it can be converted into energy. So insulin resistance is derived from a number of factors and probably the first and foremost among these is going to be derived from overweight and obesity and higher body fat levels. So when you are of a higher body fat, you have increased circulating fatty acids, which essentially block the keyhole in which is responsible for activating the insulin pathway. Yeah, so what really happens is that fatty acids will go into your cells and what they're going to do is block this thing called IRS, which is insulin response substrate. And IRS normally signals for GLUT4 to come to the cell surface so that that GLUT4 can take up glucose into the cell. But when that's blocked, then you don't have GLUT4 coming up to the cell surface. And then essentially you continuously have high blood glucose levels and high free fatty acid levels. And you can't get energy into those cells. So it is a huge issue. And yeah, it certainly is often brought on by being overweight or obese, but it can even be brought on by people are, who are technically a healthy body weight, but if they are very, very inactive too, and just have poor quality diets. And yeah, the reason behind this is because when you actually perform exercise, you do not need that IRS molecule to activate the release of GLUT4. So that exercise will independently stimulate GLUT4 to the cell service and uptake glucose. Yeah, and that's why, you know, for type 2 diabetics, that's why it's so important for them to regularly be exercising so that they can take advantage of that GLUT4 coming up and so that they can get more glucose into their cells. 
And if you do have insulin resistance, you will definitely know about it because essentially your blood glucose levels will be very high because you won't be able to store that glucose. And it can relate, probably the most telltale sign is needing to go to the bathroom very often. And also you'll be peeing, basically peeing glucose into your urine and it'll be very sweet smelling and quite sickly as well. Yeah, and you can suffer from things like retinopathy, neuropathy, nephropathy. So that's essentially when blood glucose levels are so high that they cause damage to your retinas and your eyes and also your neurons and the nephrons in your kidneys. So it can be very, very dangerous. But usually the way that people figure out that they have insulin resistance is by going to the doctor and getting a blood test. And during that blood test, what they'll do is they'll measure your HbA1c levels. So HbA1c is essentially, it shows you how high your glucose levels are over time because it shows a sugar molecule, so glucose, attached to hemoglobin, which is a protein in your blood. So generally, HbA1c for a healthy individual is between 4 to 5.5%, but usually if it's above 6.5%, that's usually indicative that you have insulin resistance and you have type 2 diabetes. And for people who get those measured, you usually want to get that measured every three months or so to see that if you did have insulin resistance, you'd want to see hopefully that HbA1c level going down every three months. And that's because red blood cells are recycled every three months. So yeah, you can only really get that test taken every three months. And also with the red blood cells recycled, it also ties into why you can only donate whole blood every three months too, because you need to renew all of those cells. But yeah, I, I think Jack and I just really want to put out a message that if you are a young, healthy, active individual of a healthy body weight, you really, really do not need to be worrying about something like insulin resistance. Mm, definitely. It's very, very uncommon. Yeah, if you exercise regularly, there's definitely no way you have insulin insensitivity and there's no need to be taking these glucose disposal agents, which have been on the market recently as well. Exactly. You have the gold standard glucose disposal agent already. You've got insulin being secreted by your body and you are just fine. Okay, so hopefully that answered your question. So we're going to move on to the next one. So this question was asked by Ben Lloyd Fitness, and it says, what's the best loading strategy during peak week? For example, front, back, or progressive load? So yeah, this is a great question, and Tierra and I will usually go for a back load approach as opposed to a front load. So a back load is basically carving up in the days in the days that are most prior to the show. For example, if the show's on a Saturday, it'll be Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, as opposed to a front load, which is when you gain fullness early into the week, so around Monday or Tuesday, and then you just hold that fullness up until the show. And I guess both methods work, but Tierra and I feel like it's a bit easier to hold that fullness if you do it more directly before the show. And the way we conduct this is basically by using our client's high day values for that peak week. So for example, for my client, Lockie, we've been doing high days for the last 10 weeks or so. And that gives us a very good indication of how well he respond to those high day numbers and basically uh, enables us to predict how much he'll need for peak week. 
Yeah, I just think that is such a useful method for having those four low days during the week and then final three high days, especially like doing that quite a few weeks out from the competition because it really gives you as a coach and also the competitor a very good idea of how they are going to respond to that higher carbohydrate intake and gives you an advantage to manipulate things early and yeah, just really eliminating any you know, unexpected variables so that you really know what to expect and it's all in your control. And not to mention in those final few weeks of a contest prep, having high days really can help with energy levels and motivation and exercise performance too, and just retaining lean muscle mass and hopefully slowing down a decrease in meat and also exercise performance and all of those things too. So lots of benefits to having higher carbohydrate days, that is for sure. Yeah, there's no one best method. That's just how we practice it. And it'll all depend on how you've structured your prep so far and if you have a coach what's their strategy but hopefully it will be involving extra carbohydrates yes exactly <laughs> jesus we really hope you're carved up on show day no one wants to look flat <laughs> actually i saw this really interesting thing that brandon kempter he actually mentioned uh, jack and i didn't go to this conference but this happened in perth over the weekend it was like the physique conference i think for issn sports nutrition course or something like that. Anyway, he had this interesting slide that said, you need to get flat to get lean, but you need carbs to look lean. I just, I that can't get out of my head. And I, th I think that's so cool and it's so correct that obviously you need to be in an energy deficit during comp prep and carbohydrates need to be lower to create that energy deficit to an extent and you will look flat. And then in that process, you are getting leaner but then during peak week, and especially on show day, you need to be full of carbs and you need to be full of glycogen to actually look lean. So that's just a funny little segue. Anyway, all right, so we're going to move on to our next question. So this one was asked by Sean Merle, and it says, I've been thinking about serving sizes for fruits and vegetables. Most things that I find are in number of cups. But honestly, who really measures cups except when baking? So how many grams of various fruits and vegetables are in a serving? So this is a really good question. And I'm sure a anyone who like reads nutrition guidelines or the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, you know, it always says a cup of spinach or a cup of lettuce. But like, just like Sean said, let's be honest, who the heck actually measures their stuff in a cup? Like I've never put apples in a cup or something like that. And... I guess people really think about fruits and vegetables in terms of serving sizes as just themselves, which I think is a good way to look at it. So one serving of fruit on the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, it says either like half a cup or a cup, but it also in terms of grams, it says 75 grams worth. So this for vegetables. Yeah. So for vegetables, so like 75 grams worth of spinach or 75 grams worth of carrots. But I think the main thing is is just maybe try to get as many vegetables and as many pieces of fruit into your diet as you can. The general recommendation is five serves of vegetables for a female and six serves of vegetables for a male per day. And then females and males are recommended to consume two serves of fruit. But I've also seen other recommendations that say like two to three serves of fruit or vegetables per thousand calories consumed. 
But I would even argue with that because I think that the lower your energy intake is, so let's say that you are on 1,500 calories or something, I would actually advocate that you are eating more fruits and more vegetables because they are going to be very, very nutrient dense. And because you're consuming less calories, it's very important that you are consuming a nutrient dense diet to ensure that you don't become nutrient deficient in anything. But would you just say, like, just keep it simple, like look at, you know, a serving size of fruit or vegetables as like one apple, one orange, one carrot, one tomato? Uh, potentially, but I was going to go on a separate tangent here and say that we also have to look at the big picture and that it's very, very difficult to give a gram amount for a serving size because the daily recommendations are based off uh, or the amount of vegetables are based off the micronutrient content. So the reason why, say, five serves of vegetables is recommended is, one, it's actually based on your weekly average. So you could technically eat um, six times seven is 42. Yes, six <laughs> times seven is 42. So 42 <laughs> serves of vegetables in one day, and that would satisfy your weekly requirements. They've just split it up into daily requirements because that's what's easiest for the general populace to look at. Yeah, a lot of people don't actually know that the Australian Dietary Guidelines were formed off some pretty funky, just some pretty funky recommendations, really, because everything was taken from weekly averages. So they did look at a population of people who didn't have chronic disease and what they ate across a week. And then they decided to divide that by seven because they were like, you know, people aren't going to look at this in terms of a week. They're going to look at it in terms of days. So... Mm. (laughs) <laughs> that's not that's not i would still recommend consuming things on a daily basis yeah, obviously i think it makes more sense too <laughs> but i'm just trying to say that like you got to look at the big picture and that it doesn't really make sense to give uh gram amounts for vegetable consumption because there's going to be so much diversity and variation in how much micronutrient content is in vegetables and even say vegetables grown here versus the u.s it's going to be completely different due to soil composition and all that sort of stuff and like pesticides used the way of processing those vegetables how they harvest them all those sorts of things so i would usually just go off just eyeballing or even to be honest i would think cup sizing is actually quite good because you can base it off very easily in terms of eyeballing it and even just referencing it to your palm size but like Tierra said, just try and eat lots of fruits and vegetables in general. And one more fact before I finish is that if people actually ate enough vegetables, we wouldn't even have any fruit recommendations. Uh, the reason why we have fruit recommendations is because people typically eat more fruit than vegetables. But I guess the dietary guidelines would prefer us to pri- prioritize vegetables because they have like lower sugar. Yeah, what a joke. I think they did some sort of statistic like uh, for all of the Australian population, unfortunately, less than 50% of people meet their two serves of fruit recommendation per day. But I think it's less than like 10 or 7% actually consume enough vegetables. And I was just thinking about this too. Okay, I ate a tomato last night and it was like 230 grams or something. If you were to go off the 75 gram recommendation equals one serve of vegetables, technically that tomato had what over three servings of vegetables in one tomato like i don't think so (laughs) it's just a tomato it's basically like 90 percent water too so 
Anyway, I don't know. But yeah, I'd say, yeah, just fill your like diet with heaps of fruits and vegetables. You'll feel good and things will be moving. And yeah, you are unlikely to run into any health sort of problems. Let's hope so anyway. (laughs) So this actually leads well into a question by Daniel Yates, who asks, optimal fiber and what happens slash problems occur with too much or too less fiber? So optimal fiber recommendations. So for females, the recommendation is at least 25 grams per day, and then males is at least 30 grams per day. Or there are some other recommendations that per 1,000 calories, you consume around 14 grams of fiber per 1,000 calories. Do you really think that those amounts of fiber is optimal though? Because it seems like I could have 30 grams in one meal of fiber. I know, me too. My fiber like is off the charts most days. But I think that's actually a really good indication that you have a very nutritious and wholesome diet. The higher your fiber intake is, I think that really is a good reflection of how nutrient dense your diet is. Because when we think about where fiber comes from, it comes from fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. So even just looking at someone's fiber intake, unless they tell you like, oh yeah, man, I'm just all on the bene fiber or something like that. They're just taking spoonfuls of that per day. Or protein or, bars. Yeah, protein bars or phylum husk or something. They've got some really funky diet. But in most cases, you know, it is a good reflection of the nutrient density of someone's diet. And yeah, so in terms of actually summarize your question, I think definitely don't be scared to push up your fiber. The maximum amount recommended is 75 grams per day. So don't feel like you have to like, oh, I've hit 30 for the day. Like I can just chill out. I can eat some ice cream instead of going for those like more wholesome grains. Because at the end of the day, the reason why fiber is beneficial is because one, in a dieting phase, it actually helps fill you up, basically acts as like a scrubbing brush for our intestines and higher fiber is actually correlated, or I should say adequate fiber is correlated with reduced risk of bowel cancer and associated GIT diseases. Yeah, and a higher fiber diet, you know, it's going to add more positive bacterial diversity within your gut. So you're going to have a healthier microbiome, I guess you could say. And then also, you know, uh, certain foods with certain types of fiber. So like oats have a certain type of fiber in them called beta-glucan. So beta-glucan has been shown to bind to cholesterol in the diet and also cholesterol from bile that is released into the small intestine from the gallbladder. And then that's shown to stop cholesterol reabsorption. So that can help to lower blood cholesterol levels too, which is really positive. And if you have a higher fiber diet, so for example, if you're consuming carbohydrates, right, but one serving of carbohydrates, let's say that you consumed oatmeal compared to rice, the fiber within that oatmeal, even if you consume the same number of carbohydrates that you would have in rice, it's going to slow down the absorption of that glucose into your bloodstream. So you're not going to have as high of blood glucose level spikes. And so you're essentially going to have longer lasting, more sustained energy throughout the day. Mm. Yeah, I think there is a bit of a misconception that fiber contains nutrients or it contains vitamins and minerals. But as Tierra said before, the foods that contain fiber usually do contain those properties. For example, oats will contain monounsaturated fats, 
Lentils will contain polyphenols and a bunch of other vitamins and minerals as well, which obviously the body requires. But fiber does have those separate properties, which we discussed. And so what are the problems with too much fiber? So, Oh, shit. <laughs> so yeah, that pretty much sums it up. What happens when you have too much fiber? And especially if you're not used to large doses of fiber, you can get a lot of bloating and will slow down your digestive motility as well. Would you say it slows... Wait, did you say it slows down if you have too much? You don't think it would speed it up? Well, I think it can go either way. Yeah, I guess it depends. I think we've spoken about this before on whether or not you're consuming soluble or insoluble fiber. So if you're consuming a lot of soluble fiber, it's going to cause you to absorb a lot more water into your intestines and there's just going to be a lot more moisture in your stools. So in that case, you know, if you're consuming soluble sources of fiber, so Oats are a primary example of this. Anything that like absorbs water when you cook it, so oats, potatoes, uh, wholemeal flour, things like that, then I would say that you're probably more likely to go to the bathroom more often. But if you were consuming a lot of insoluble fiber, as well, you might not be drinking enough water and you might be a bit dehydrated. So a hell of a lot of corn, you were eating a lot of nuts, you were eating a lot of kale, something like that, then you might feel a little bit backed up and you wouldn't go to the bathroom as often. So yeah, I'd probably go either way. Mm. And the other problem with too much fiber, but this is probably more on the spectrum of 75 grams and above each day, is it can impair the absorption of nutrients and fats as well. And there are also other components of your food, such as tannins and oxalates as well. So tannins coming from tea, oxalates coming from leafy greens, which can also impair vitamin and mineral absorption. So one common one is iron absorption, which can be impaired by excessive fiber, but fiber will pretty much impair the absorption of pretty much every uh, vitamin and mineral really. Yeah, but in saying that too, you know, if you have a whole, like a balanced diet, it's not something that you need to be worried about. You know, you don't, like, I would say more focus on getting adequate fiber and getting an abundance of wholesome foods in your diet, and you're going to get more than enough nutrients from those foods. So even if you lose a little in your stools, you know, you're going to be just fine. You're going to keep on living all healthy because your body's still going to be able to absorb enough of them. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think anyone needs to worry about that really. Yeah. Okay. And then what about too low a fiber intake? What would happen there? So essentially the impacts of that are not going to be instantaneous. I think a lot of it's going to be chronic. For example, if you're not having that constant motility of fiber throughout your digestive tract, you will be of a higher risk of GIT disorders and also bowel cancer as well later on. And also, like Tierra said before, if you aren't having fiber, then what are you having? Like, are you just having very processed foods or like white bread, white, white pasta, white rice without much fiber? And therefore, those products as well don't contain as much nutritional properties compared to the whole grain options. So I would be concerned for your basically your nutritional health because you aren't containing like whole grains, fruits, vegetables, etc., Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And damn, just talk about being uncomfortable, like not going to the bathroom regularly, not having regular GI motility, and just 
constantly feeling bloated and just like there's a lot of stuff sitting in your intestines, that would be very, very uncomfortable. So if you do have a low fiber diet, I would recommend that, you know, over a few days, incrementally try to increase it. So let's say that you were below 15 grams per day, try to incrementally increase it up to maybe 20 grams the next day, then 25, then maybe 30. Don't jump from like 15 grams to 75 grams because again, oh shit, (laughs) right? Okay, but yeah, so just incrementally do it just like anything. But I don't don't think being in prep acts as an excuse for having low fiber either because definitely not if you are being strategic with your nutrient choices you should be well above 30 grams during prep i'd say yeah if anything i would personally i would be even more in prep because i would be eating all of those non-starchy vegetables which have very low calories so like yeah anything other than like potatoes sweet potato pumpkin uh turnips and corn pretty much everything else is almost like very low energy and very high fiber. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's really going to help satiate you. And that's going to be the most strategic way to approach nutrition during the very end of a prep. So even though you're on low calories per se, your diet should still be pretty damn nutrient dense if you're smart with your food choices. Okay, so that's all the questions that we're going to answer for today. We still have quite a few left that we will leave for our next podcast episode. So the second one for this week. But before we head off, we're going to say one thing that we learned this week. So for the past week or so, Tiara and I have been building our website for the Bodybuilding Dietitians, which will be hopefully releasing quite soon. So I learned all about building websites and fortunately most of it's done for us. So we use a template and we basically fill in the information that we need. Otherwise, we're not exactly tech gurus, so we'd be in some trouble. I, I feel like it's only appropriate to give Jeff Nippard and Squarespace a shout out because if it wasn't for Jeff Nippard, we wouldn't have known about Squarespace and we've been using Squarespace to build our website, which has been so exciting. It's such an awesome website building. Mm. It's builder. Yeah, it's quite fancy. Makes it look very professional. Yes. Oh man, I'm so excited. That's been such a fun project that Jack and I have been working on. And oh man, that should be hopefully released within the next week. And our team t-shirts should arrive today too, which is super exciting as well. So damn, lots of exciting stuff is happening. What did you learn this week? Okay. So this week I learned that I should probably start tracking my spices. Now, (laughs) I'm not talking about like pepper or fresh rosemary or something. I'm talking about more things like smoky paprika, curry powder, maybe even cinnamon. Because to be honest, I use a hell of a lot of spices every single day. And I've never really, I've never tracked them before. I've never put them into my fitness pal. And I don't know why the hell it's taken me this long, but I only just looked on the back of the smoky paprika packet a few days ago. And I was like, holy shiz. I had no idea that this actually had a, it's like literally a decent carbohydrate, fat, and protein content. It's pretty much a one-to-one-to-one ratio. And there's actually calories in it. And I'm not kidding. I use a lot of spices. I put spices on my eggs, on my potatoes, on my salads, all my vegetables, basically everything. Everything I cook with always has some sort of herbs and spices in it. And I reckon I'm probably consuming an extra like 100 calories per day from spices. So... 
Yeah, and given that I start comp prep in five days and I want to be as accurate as possible with my nutrition tracking, I'm literally going to be tracking and weighing every single thing that goes into my mouth. And for some people that might sound crazy, but honestly, with the amount of smoky paprika that I eat, I think it's necessary (laughs) just so that I can be as accurate as possible. Otherwise, I'm definitely going to be over that plus or minus two gram range per macro. So yeah, here's to tracking my paprika, man. Woohoo! Mm. Exciting times. Okay, so that is the- What did you change between this week and last prep? Tracked my spices. Tracked my spices. Track your spices. That's when you know things are getting serious when you're tracking spices. All right, so that is the end of our 37th podcast episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we're going to catch you again in a few days. 